Be Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to the Be Fabulous podcast. This represents series two, and I'm really excited about this series. Uh, um, for those of you who don't know, we've uh, uh, been running solidarity hours at ThinkShift, and we've had a wonderful uh, speaker that joined us, Francesca. Um, and we decided after hearing her speak, and quite frankly, um, having us in tears almost, well, he certainly had me in tears, um, that we wanted to do something a bit more meaningful against the backdrop of what's happening in our world right now with regards to uh, systemic racism and really just our experiences of growing up as being, you know, as Francesca being a black person, myself being a brown person, and Vicky being a white person. And uh, we thought it'd be really interesting for us just to share our stories. Um, we really hope you enjoy doing this. This is, this is tough for us to do as, a, as individuals. Um, we're we're going to be taking ourselves to places that uh, we, we certainly have never done in public before this way. And um, I, what I will ask is, um, it takes a lot of vulnerability on behalf of the people participating in this, to be honest about things that have shaped us. And I hope you take this in the spirit in which it was intended to uh, promote better understanding, tolerance, and ultimately help us in some, sh- some small way, take us to a world that has more equity and more justice. So um, kind of without, without sort of further ado, what I'd really like to do is just ask um, uh, Vicky and Francesca just to very quickly introduce themselves and just say what they're, what they're thinking about this before we kind of go into our interview format that we'll be running. Uh, Francesca, I, I think you should say a few words. Wow, thank you, Vips and uh, Vicky. This is really awesome and it's a unique experience uh, for me personally. Um, I don't know how I'm feeling right now. It's a, it's, it, it's a, you know, being vulnerable is an understatement. Um, risk is a big one, and my heart is beating. Okay, so um, I'm not usually somebody that is afraid of public speaking, but this is a very different one. So I just want you to be aware of that, and um, as I always do, I, I want to speak from the heart uh, because if if I'm if I'm speaking from the perspective of what everybody should be hearing, then there's no difference to what you've always known. So I'm going to be speaking very deeply from the heart, my childhood experience and how I got here and just different things like that. So I'll be going, you know, I'm just going to be very open with you. Let's just put it that way. So uh, I'll stop right there. We wouldn't have it any other way. Vicky. Ah, thank you, Francesca. Uh, and Vips, this is going to be a very interesting three-part series. I, uh, I have to echo Francesca's words. You know, it's a topic she and I were talking about after the Solidarity Hour, and we both got very excited about it. But then the reality hit of, oh, <laughs> what, what do I believe and what have I grown up with? And um, growing up as a white South African in the apartheid years, 
I haven't really wanted to delve into my story. So my hands are more than clammy. I have a huge, huge hole in the bottom of my tummy and I feel very, very anxious about uh, this conversation, but also very excited. And um, I'm excited to see where it goes. I haven't prepared because I don't know how to prepare for this conversation. I am so excited to dive in, but I have a lot of anxiety. I've never spoken about this in, in my life and I don't actually know what's going to come out of my mouth. And I, I, hope, I hope you'll forgive me for whatever it is. I, I think that's, uh, I think we're all in exactly the same boat and uh, I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. So why don't, I think we should, we should kick off because I think, uh, I think we're nervous enough now. And I think, uh, I think the quicker we kick off, the better we'll feel. You know, just as a quick sort of sidebar, just to maybe um, lighten the mood a little bit, I think we have very common paths, meaning I think everybody here in some way, shape or form, like you were born in Africa as well, right, Francesca? No, I was actually born in England. You born in England. Is, but did yeah. you spend any time in Africa? I did, I did. I spent about maybe 13, 14 years in Africa. Yep. Okay, so there's the England, Africa, US dimension to all three of us. Yeah. Uh, you know, my parents were also, they lived in Kenya for 30 years. All my oh, sisters wow. were born in Kenya. I was actually born in England after they came to England. But, uh, you know, it's the, 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 the sort of the England, England, Africa, uh, uh, US um, perspective is something we all share. And I thought it would be nice for us to talk about something we shared on before, we, uh, uh, before, I, before I interviewed you. That's so, awesome. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's so cool. And uh, Nairobi, Nairobi was where, wow. where Nairobi in Kenya was uh, Wonderful. where I have some background. Mine's Nigeria. It's awesome. I can tell by your accent. I love the Nigerian accent. It's my Thank favorite. you. Um, so I, I'm going to just start with a few questions. I've got to ask you. So, um, you know, given the topic, we're trying, to, we're trying to sort of tap into kind of our own childhood beliefs and biases, particularly with regards to um, what we experienced that shaped our beliefs. Are there specific examples or thoughts that you can point to around what it was like for you when you were growing up? Oh, definitely. Um, so my, my parents are of African descent, Nigeria to be specific. Um, my father received some kind of scholarship way back, you know, as a young man to go to England to study. And my mother later joined him. So. Um, I'm actually one of six siblings. Uh, the first two were born in England, of which I'm the second. So I was, um, I was born in North London, in Enfield Hospital. Oh, wow. Um, I think you guys probably would know. Um, I was, I was know born in Whittington is. Hospital, which was oh, right? about five miles from there. <laughs> I hope it's not the same time and the <laughs> same, <laughs> same neighborhood for sure, right? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so I was, uh, I was born in Enfield. Um, so about age five, me and my sister, we were taken back to Nigeria with my parents. I guess they were done with whatever they were doing, study and uh, receive uh, the you know, education they wanted to get from, from there. So um, we went back to Nigeria. I didn't remember the, the, you know, the young age when I went back, but of course I remember you know, my former years, all that definitely was in Nigeria. Um, so I made very good friends while, while in Nigeria, and many of them are still my friends, uh, still till today. Um, so in terms of um, personal experiences, um, 
So I could start from just dolls, you know, like dolls that you play with. Um, dolls are naturally white. Um, mm. I don't recollect ever seeing a black doll. If it existed, it would be frightening. Um, so having a white doll actually puts you in a different class. You are upper class. Local kids, they play on the streets. They roll cans and tires. So they, you know, they'll be running around on the streets, whether with shoes or without shoes and all that. But, you know, we feel special. We feel, you know, educated and, um, mm. you know, just, just privileged. Um, so from a very young age, I know and I accepted that the lighter your skin color is, the prettier you are. In fact, as I grew up, I got to know many ladies that use bleaching cream to look fairer in complexion. Um, most black people, like myself, we have kinky hair, you know, very thick kinky hair, yeah. but many prefer to perm or straighten them uh, so it will look naturally soft, curly, or straight like white hair. Um, if you're a lady and you wear your hair natural, you know, naturally kinky, you are assumed to be poor or you're an illiterate. Um, a white man is generally assumed to be superior. Uh, but more importantly, apart from Indians like you, Vips, um, everybody is considered white. Um, you know, apart from brown-looking, Vips-type-looking uh, person, right? Everybody is white. So whether it's like a, a lighter-looking Latino or what have you, they're all white when I was growing up. Um, so let me just give you one more example about my childhood and then, um, you know, we'll see whether you, you want me to explore that a little bit more. Um, I remember at school, I learned about the history of some empires in Africa. So they have the Mali Empire, Shanghai Empire, but there was absolutely nothing about slavery. Um, many textbooks were written using European or American context. And from the perspective of white people in general. So think about it. Um, you may be reading something and it referred to a bitter snow and cold weather. Well, Nigeria only has two seasons. It's <laughs> wet and dry. So consider an average Nigerian student who has never seen snow before and needs to study and pass in flying colors. So academically, most concepts are not relatable. Mm. We just memorize and you regurgitate during examination. So when it comes to conceptually understanding or being able to apply anything, it's non-existent. I mean, isn't that amazing? That is you can't incredible. Even, right? You can't even relate to anything. So, um, what, what do you think? What, what do you think were for you, and I guess for people that you that grew up with you? How, how did that manifest itself in? issues, if you like. Like, how did that show up as disadvantages with regards to kind of what that made you believe um, was appropriate, not appropriate, successful, unsuccessful, good, bad? I'm very curious how, where you take that. Well, I mean, first, one thing is actually very certain uh, as I was growing up. Superiority of whiteness uh, was established from the onset absolutely superior. You always assume white means smarter, it means more intelligent, and definitely more desirable um, by, by blacks. Um, I, think, I think you can identify with these vapes, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, Vicky. 
Um, English is the lingua franca of Nigeria. Mm. That's the language of business, okay? So almost everyone speaks English. However, um, speaking English with a Nigerian accent does not place you on a higher pedestal, period. In fact, even if you have a PhD in English and you have all the right types of fancy vocabularies, um, comedians actually make fun of you because they, they don't see it as anything of privilege. But if a white man with no education or no college degree speaks English, he is more respectable than the black guy with a PhD. It's, it's actually very ironic. Um, so, you know, you'll just think that white means smart and, um, you know, most intelligent and well-read black or Nigerians are definitely not smart. At least as I was growing up, you, you arrogate smartness to, mm. to, um, to white people. Um, the other aspect that um, I may want to bring up may be on production, locally produced items are considered inferior. Anything imported from outside of Africa is superior in quality. Clothing, shoes, uh, food, everything. As long as it's imported from uh, England or United States or anywhere, it is superior. It must be better. Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the perception, exactly. Um, I mean, you will know that um, even in the car industry here in California, they have specs, right? Californian specs. You need to meet those specs. Well, in Nigeria, if it's coming from the Western world, there is no specs. Just bring it. It must be good. Um, and uh, you, you just go with the flow. Um, I was thinking to myself, I think a few days ago, about even the clothing that we wear. Now, you know, business outfits, generally, formal business outfits, is, is a suit, right? And um, as I said, Nigeria has two seasons, wet and dry. Well, you know, over here, suit makes sense, especially if it's 100% wool, cashmere, or, you know, similar, you know, high quality. It makes sense to, to, to wear those. But in Nigeria, in Africa, it's a tropical weather <laughs> environment. <laughs> it's never, there's no snow, no cold, nothing. Yet, we wear suit, we put on ties, and we're sweating like crazy. But that is expected. That is the norm. We must comply. You know, it's just amazing how white culture dominates and yeah. shapes our thought process, even until today. It's, it's totally yeah. crazy. It is. It's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's funny you say that because even growing up in South Africa, we used to celebrate a white Christmas with the, the snowman and the big Christmas dinner, you know, again, from northern, northern Europe. And we're in Africa and we're on the beach and it's hot as anything and nobody wants to eat this damn hot meal. <laughs> we just want to barbecue and swim, but everybody's like, Christmas, British yep. way. <laughs> again, as ex-colonies, that's what you did, but it was... As you say, very unrelatable because well, no one had ever seen snow. No one knew what it was. Well, I tell you, I mean, this, this, this is so funny. You triggered a memory in me. It's so rich. Um, my my brother-in-law and my sister got married in India. So, so he, he, he's from India. My sister was uh, in England. But when they got married, this was like, I don't know, it must have been the hottest day in India for 15 years or something. It was, you know, 42, 43, 44 degrees Celsius. And you're in the middle of the villages, no air conditioning, nothing, right? And... And he turns up as the groom in a three-piece suit because that's what would be considered to be the right thing to do because they're foreigners and somehow yep. foreigners are better off or whatever, right? Yep. Um, 
And it just, it just, you just when you said the clothing, it was just like, wow, I went, wow, that's, I think that's got more to do with colonialism. I, I, I mean, that, that definitely seems like a, when the British ruled the world kind of, you know, stiff upper lip, you will be dressed a certain yeah. way. It's just, uh, I'm, we're joking about it, but it's, but it's, it's, it's interesting how so much of that permeates through, through our lives and our culture without even realizing it. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I'd like to take you to a slightly diff- different place. I, you know, I, I'm a, I think you've given us a very good sort of almost like an analysis of the things you experienced when you were, when you were growing up. But I, I, I tend to believe that um, our, our own identities tend to be disproportionately impacted by, by moments, whether they be moments where we were, bad moments, if you like, where we're experiencing at a personal level something that feels unjust or, or wrong or bad or or unacceptable, or conversely, great things that then, you know, that give you hope for humanity. And I, I'm, I'm very curious that, um, you know, are, are there any, are there any of those moments that stick out to you, which is like, you know, the world is so unfair. I can't believe that's, that's what happened to me. <laughs> well, um, yeah, they, they're just so many, so many that I can think of, to be honest with you. Um, Vips. Um, I can think of personal instances where you know you're absolutely qualified uh, for a position. In fact, um, you know, I, I applied for a role, um, I won't name the companies actually here in the US. Um, I was working with uh, Nestle at that time and I applied for a position with another company here in the US. And um, for an interview, everything was fantastic. You know, most instances when I speak on the phone, they can't figure out when, where I'm from unless you're very familiar with anyone that's from my background. So uh, sometimes they will think, oh, are you from, you know, the island? Are you from? And my name for Jimmy sounded more Japanese in, you know, somehow. So they're trying to figure all those things out, but they didn't. So anyway, I had the interview on the phone and everything was great. And um, basically, they just said, look, just come on in, just meet with us and all that. And um, I went in and I met with them and uh, they looked at me and they thought it couldn't be. It's impossible. It couldn't have been me that they interviewed on the phone. And I said, yeah, this is it's This is me. This is me. This is me. You know what was funny? Um, It's not not funny. It's sad. I mean, it, it's sad, but the reality was it was a conversation of about a few minutes and I knew right away that it wasn't going anywhere. I didn't get to meet with, you know, all the key people that they wanted me to meet with and um, that was pretty much the end of it. There was even no follow-up, no response, nothing whatsoever. And you know you're absolutely qualified. Your name sometimes gives you up, um, you know, your address sometimes gives you yeah. up. Um, sometimes even your accent. Uh, mine, unfortunately, well, fortunately, could be in between, depending. Sometimes it just depends on, you know, my mood. Um, so that was just one example on a personal note that you know right away that you're going to need to fight a lot harder to get anywhere. You need to push a lot harder to get anywhere, um, you know, in this environment. So, um, you know, that's just one example. So, Francesca... I mean, it's so heartbreaking and we hear of these stories all the time. And, you know, personally, when I moved to the UK, when I was in my early 20s from South Africa, I remember distinctly feeling very privileged to be a white-skinned African. 
um, going for visas, going through borders. And I used to turn to my husband and go, I'm so glad I'm a little blonde white hood. I look European, you know, because I, I knew without anyone actually telling me, I could feel that I was being treated differently. And, um, and it, it just makes me think, how, how did you feel when you had the opposite of, this is my job, and they purely on, are, are judging me based on what they're seeing in front of them without necessarily giving me a chance? Because I can only imagine how, how deeply heartbreaking it must feel to, to be in that situation. You know, the, the feeling is one of anger, frustration, uh, hopelessness. Um, there's nothing you can do. You're black. I mean, if it's something about education, study more, do something more, I've done all of it, but that's not it. You're dealing with the color of your skin, which you cannot do anything about. So you feel totally helpless. You feel powerless. Um, you can't, there's nothing you can do. It's almost like you just have to keep running, but there is absolutely no end in sight. Um, so it's, uh, it, was, it was very tough. It was extremely tough, but... Um, that was just one experience. Um, but that was also when you—that was also when you were an adult, though, right? That's uh, absolutely. So absolutely. So, did you experience that at school and as part of growing up too? So, um, well, the funny thing is that even as of now, the experience is still there. You still—it's still, it's still mm. current. It hasn't changed. Um, I mean, I know in many places. Um, there was a time, you know, Vicky, you probably know, I've, I've worked and I've traveled to many, many countries. Mm -hmm. And um, I was representing one multinational. Uh, I went to one of their locations outside of the U.S., but in Western world, obviously. Um, so I went in and uh, they were shocked uh, to see me as black. Francesca does not sound black, um, but I went in and... Um, there was absolutely no respect for me because I'm black and I don't know whether female was part of it. Um, but when I stood up and I began to speak on this subject, then you can see that they, they are, their perception, they, they are, the way they, they warm towards me changed because they now realize, oh, she's actually smart. I mean, she knows her subject. She can help us. Then everything kind of shifted. And that's actually what goes on today in my world. They see black first until somebody just gives you that opportunity to just prove yourself that I'm actually very intelligent. I can help you. And when they give you that opportunity, then they begin to see no longer the color of your skin. They begin to see the expertise and the quality and what's the content that you are made of, they begin to see that. Um, and that's just, that's my world. That's my world today. That was my world in school. That was my world everywhere I go. It doesn't matter. Um, the color of your skin first. And that perception goes with it. And if somebody chooses to give you the opportunity, then maybe you can prove yourself. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So the opportunity, it's like the opportunity pool is therefore tiny. It's constrained. Indeed. Indeed. Especially, especially when you think about who runs companies, you know, the majority is white males of a certain age. Um, and so that goes to reinforce the, the, the prejudice and the assumption around it. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. Um, but, you know, um, I'm at a point where I think I'm making the decision that um, it, it's not easy. It's, it's not easy. But I'm making the, deci- the decision that I want to make a difference. It might be a risk, but I will. I'll, I'll go forward with it, and um, we'll see how it goes. I mean, sharing with you guys is one of those risks, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's absolutely. Um, but it's also um, hopefully uh, inspiring at some level as well to whoever listens to this, but also um, I'm a strong believer in whatever we model uh, people take inspiration from, and even if a very small fraction of those people start modeling the same same patterns, then the world changes um, slowly but surely. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, Francesca, take us deeper. What are some uncomfortable truths that you've experienced that we need to know that we may not know? Um. So let me let me share with you about um, my grandson. Um, I use him as an as an example during my first um, conversation on this subject. Um, so um, he's three years old, and um, you know my daughter is doing a really good job. Um, you know, just trying to raise him right and. Um, making sure he has a good understanding of um, what is right and what is wrong. And we're all doing that. Um, You know, over the weekend, um, so every weekend, um, he comes over, Friday night, and he spends the weekend with us. So I have three kids. My older daughter is the mom, so um, she lives a few minutes from us, 10 minutes away. And then my two other kids, they're twins, they turned 23 yesterday, so they're home, and then my husband and myself. So the four of us. So my love comes over every weekend. So this past weekend, um, he went to my daughter's room. And um, my daughter actually recorded this conversation, and she just sent it to the family chat. So we have this family chat that you know, everybody sends things through. So she sent it through the chat. And it basically went like, um, so he, my, my daughter asked him um, some questions, and they started talking about black or something along that line. Um, he first of all said that, I think I'm turning black, something along that line, something about his skin is turning black. And then my daughter asked him a few times if he likes it. Um, he ignored the question, and he just kept repeating this change that um, he seems to be experiencing, that is turning black. Obviously, it was somehow uncomfortable for him to be turning black. So after a while, my daughter said, I like your skin. It's black like mine. Then he paused, and he looked at my daughter's skin. And then for a few seconds, he said, Auntie, your skin is a little bit black, like brown, but I, I still like it. I still like it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's I mean, for a three-year-old to be having that type of conversation, you know, that is, 
And for you to witness that as, as the granny, you know, that is just, it shouldn't be a conversation. It shouldn't be a, you know, for him to know that it's not good or it is good. It's got nothing to do with it. It's so heartbreaking. Oh, when, when you, when you goes out to you. When, when you think about, when you think about your grandson as a three-year-old, where do you think he's absorbing those beliefs from? So, of course, he watches um, movies and uh, TVs and um, he's going to school. Um, he, you know, the school he goes to, he meets people of different races and different colors. Uh, oftentimes, very few blacks in the school. Um, he, he might be one of, maybe, maybe the school has about 5% black kids over there. So very few people to um, identify with. So, um, but, I mean, he watches uh, Spider-Man. There's a black Spider-Man that they have. So he watches it, he likes it. Um, but how many of those do you have, right? Um, you, you, you know, very few things you can really identify with. But you also want to be very careful because I don't, we feel like we want him to understand what real world is. Real world, what real world should be is um, people should be judged for the content of their character, not the color of their skin, right? And we don't want him to be thinking that, oh, if you're black, you need to think this way. If you're brown, you should think this way. Um, I don't feel compelled to do that. And I don't think I'll be doing justice if we move in that direction um, for him to start thinking that, okay, if I see a black kid, I should naturally gravitate towards that black kid because I know how white or brown or black sees me. I don't want him to be thinking that way. I want him to live in a world that is just normal, a normal world. Hurts me to think that he might actually go through this. Mm. Can you imagine? It's horrible. Yeah. So sorry, guys. No, it's. Uh, please don't apologize. It's these are the. I think um, the reason why we're doing these sessions is to draw light to how complicated and deeply entrenched everything around us is. It's um, extremely difficult to look for for. Uh, we're a world, I always say in, in some of my sessions, you know, we're a world that's addicted to simple solutions. The problem with simple solutions is they only solve simple problems. They don't solve complex problems or chaotic problems. And uh, these are the sorts of problems that have been with us for millennia. Um, they, 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 they don't solve easy. Absolutely. And, and, what's, and what's powerful about what you're sharing is everybody can relate to a three-year-old. Everybody can relate to a granny caring for her three-year-old and the feeling of the judgment of the color of our skin. And what we know we want to do through these, these, this series too is to share the experiences so that we learn. And it's through these stories that we get to do that. And it's, it's magical. So thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing with us. Of course. Um, I mean, I do have hope. I mean, I, I want to be very logical and very direct and very practical 
on what I can do. I don't want to be in a position of feeling helpless with my three-year-old grandson. He's um, trusting me, trusting his parents, trusting auntie and uncle and grandpa, right, to help him. And for me personally, I've come to the conclusion that I'm going to do a combination of things. First, I want to do some telling and I want to do some living the experience of being black. As you know, it might be a fair statement uh, to say no one is truly sure of black history in the United States or even in the world. Because, yeah. I mean, the records of those yeah. history are questionable or maybe there's even no real record, right? So I'm just thinking, because of my grandson and um, the new generations, I have an obligation to propagate the understanding of the real history of the black race. So I, I want to be able to educate my grandson with the right information. I want him to know that black is beautiful. Um, black is original. It's authentic. It's, it's, he should be proud of being black. I want him to understand that. I want him to know that. I want him to embrace that. Just as white is all those things and brown is also all those things. Um, truly, the, the color of his skin um, should not be a deterrent or a, a determinant um, of, of what he accomplishes in life, um, just like everybody else. Everyone should have the opportunity to, to totally prove themselves. So I want him to be able to understand and um, to, to, to live what it means to be black and be proud doing so. Um, also, I want him to experience mm. the roots of being black. In, in the United States, um, all the slaves, they're from Africa. So he needs to identify with Africa. He needs to understand his roots. If he doesn't, it's going to be a big problem. Um, so really, the two things I really want to do, first is going to be the education, the real education, not what is out there. I want to do the research myself and provide that real education to him, um, which will shape him and form him. And then secondly, I want him to be able to experience um, blackness in its original form. Um, he has no reason to be ashamed of it. Um, he doesn't need to bleach his skin, right? He needs to just be black and be proud of who he is. That's the obligation I have. It's a tough one, but I, I've made a commitment that I'm going to do that for him. Um, I'm going to take some. I'm going to take some pressure off you for a second. Uh, I, I go through a similar um, type of scenario insofar as um, you know. We'll talk about me next next time. But um, I grew up in England. I was born in England, and uh, my parents are both Indian, and. Uh, I think I spent the first 13 years of my life basically rejecting anything that had anything to do with India whatsoever. Maybe not 13, 10, certainly 10 years. Um, because being Indian didn't work where we were growing up, but being English did. And with that, um, uh, I, if I could go back personally and do it all over again, I would have made much more, I, I wish I'd gone to India when I was younger. A few times, I wish I had gone to experience the richness of um, of the culture, the heritage, and a whole bunch of fun, colorful things that are baked into the baked into our culture. Which um, 
which to me is, you know, when I, when I think of Nigeria, I have actually been to Nigeria once, but I, it was a very long time ago. I, it's, it's long overdue again. You know, I have family in Zambia. I have family in South Africa and so forth. But uh, when I think of Nigeria, where my head goes to always, and this is, a, I guess, maybe this is a bias too, which is really, really good soccer players. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I always think of, um, you know, Arsenal has been blessed over the years as a football club of having uh, some, some fantastic uh, Nigerian players. Um, and uh, and uh, where, where, I, where I go to always is, um, uh, I feel that the whole, you know, the whole, the black experience in the US is definitely something different than the black experience in England. Now, I'm not saying it's better or worse, or it's just different. Uh, and, and I have the same experience as a brown person. And, um, you know, when you, so when you were sharing uh, the commitment that you've made, um, you were, you made me think that, you know, maybe there's there's something about I don't know what the right phrase is. I want, I don't know what the right politically correct phrase is. But to my knowledge, there isn't like a Nigeria summer school or an Africa summer school or even a or even a India. I mean, we don't. I I don't know that we do a good job of creating the systems and structures ourselves to propagate the richness of our heritage and culture. And I'm so curious to hear what you have to say about that because I think it's squarely in the realms of what you're talking about. And I think about this all the time. And, you know, we're a, we're a, we're a mixed-race family. And it gets even more complicated then. <laughs> you, don't even know, you don't even know what to do. And so I'm super curious as you think of yourself as a grandmother. I, mean, I think of myself as a father. Yep. Like, you know, this is where I think the Jewish culture has got it right from that point of view. I mean, it's... It's, it's a brilliant culture from the perspective of, now it may, may be like slightly overwhelming because you're going to school on the sixth, you know, sixth day and it's a big deal to go on Sundays and, and it's, it seems like just a whole other degree that you're doing as part of growing up. On the other hand, um, it really uh, um, breeds in a sense of identity very early on. And I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on that as we, uh, as we bring this almost to a close for today. Um, you know, when you said that you regretted not doing uh, some things when you were young, um, it's the same over here. But the bottom line is, you know, when there is life, there is hope. And we, I feel like I have an obligation now. It's not too late. Even if I only need to live another 50 years, let's pretend. I can do a lot in 50 years, right? So definitely, um, my grandson is going to know about his roots. He will go there. He's going to spend time there. He's going to go to school there. Um, he's going to do something there that will shape him, that will form him. Um, and I have some practical things that I need to do myself because I'm still struggling with some things. Um, think about it. Is it my hair? I mean, do you, do you know that um, <laughs> California was the first state to pass the Crown Act and this was only done last year. Do you guys know I, what the I, I, I do know is? of it, but I don't know it in sufficient detail. So please explain. So um, CROWN is actually an acronym for Create a Respectful and Open Workplace for Natural Hair. So the bottom line is that black ladies uh, don't need to put chemicals on their hair anymore um, 
for their hair to look straight or curly. They are now allowed to go to work with their natural hair, naturally kinky hair. My hair, what you're looking at, is not my natural hair. Um, <laughs> it's a weave. My natural hair is kinky. Mm. But as of now, I'm still not courageous enough or bold enough to go to work with my natural hair. At my level, I should be comfortable to be able to take that step, but I'm not. I'm getting closer, Vicky, uh, Vips. <laughs> I know I will be there soon, but not quite. So when, what they call protective hairstyle for blacks, maybe braids or cornrow. Um, so you have the braids, you know, where you wave your hair. But how many black female executives have you met? How many of them actually have protective hairstyle? I don't know of any at all. This is going to be a very bold step. It's going to be a very risky step because it doesn't fit in. Braids or cornrow makes you look too black. It makes you look less intelligent, makes you look too aggressive, makes you, you just don't fit in. It doesn't fit into corporate, doesn't fit into executive suites. So I, I, it's going to be a tough one. It would definitely be a tough one. It's but I also think one. there has probably been no better time in our living histories um, to experience that. I mean, if you think about it, I'm, I'm having calls with presidents and CEOs and God knows what on a daily basis. And none of them are looking particularly professional right now. None of them look like they belong in the C-suite. And, and I think, um, you know, with that thought, it's probably worth um, us reacting or maybe reflecting on what better time than to change some of those. Because from at least from a visual appearance point of view, Zoom has done wonderful things to level the playing field because we don't have our, you know, giant offices and our glass buildings uh, to hide behind at the moment. I think with that thought, um, we should uh, close this podcast and next podcast we'll pick up where you turn the tables. And I think it's, uh, so we did black today, we'll do brown next week and, um, and then we'll do white the week after. I, I can't thank you enough, Fran Francesca, for your, for your openness and uh, uh, just the courage, there's no other word for it, the courage it takes to share some of what you did and um, uh, how hard how hard that is, is, um, you know, I have the benefit of seeing you on video while we're doing this recording as well. And, uh, how courageous it was for you to say what you did. And, um, I think we have to find the best way to share your message to as many, uh, to as many black people as possible, because, uh, uh, you're, you're certainly are not alone, um, in some of those challenges that you're going through and, um, and we all need to do better. And uh, I, I, for one, can't wait to see you in your natural hair. And uh, maybe we'll start seeing that as this podcast series goes on. And uh, I, I, can, I so look forward to that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Vips. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you, Francesca. It's been such a joy to have you here. And you know, I've known you for, for many months and probably over a year now. And um, just getting to know more and more about your story and the essence of who you are is so heartwarming and um, so enlightening. And as you share, I think as we all start to share, we'll start to see so much common humanity and all the traumas we've gone through with even things like hair. <laughs> and I, I would love to see you take that step and embrace the hair and start a movement with the hair because that's where the magic starts. And you've been wonderful. And I see the tears rolling down your eyes and your cheeks and 
um, adding to what Viv said, I, we are going to make not only every black person, but every white person and every brown person and every yellow person, anyone we can come across, listen to this, because this is what helps us understand each other. And once we understand, then we no longer generalize. It's personal. And when it's personal, that's when we start to care. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Of course. Be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs>